You are listening to the Boss Level Podcast, and I'm your host, Sami Honkonen. Today, I'm chatting with Neil Osamanen, the CTO of Vault. Vault is a delivery platform company that was recently acquired by DoorDash for billions of dollars. We talk about scaling fast while maintaining an environment focused on developer happiness. Our chat starts out with a bunch of buzzwords that may sound scary if you're not a techie, but if you're more interested on the organizational side of things, there's plenty of that stuff too, so just power through. Hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is sponsored by Vincent. What the duck is Vincent? Vincent is what happens when you put together the forerunners in modern software development, SAP consultancy, and strategic design. Vincent creates digital products and services for people and the planet, and helps brands, manufacturers, and retailers to level up their game with digital commerce. Join the ride at vincit.com in creating better Mondays for us all. So welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thank you. Thank you. We're actually going to spend most of our time talking about scaling, but first, let's give the listeners and me some understanding of what you've been scaling and at what rate. So can you just give me a general overview of the technology stack at Vault and how many people and teams are involved with engineering? The organization is in engineering, pure technology, uh, not not counting data science, analytics, or other parts of the product development paradigm. is about 420 engineers today. If you count the kind of whole, whole kind of plethora, what you need is about 500, 550 folks today. If you think of the technological stack, it's a it's a bit spread out, mostly focusing on Python and Kotlin on the backend side. That's like we've been Python was the kind of founder founder technology language and still going strong. We have a great Python community. Kotlin was the kind of the thing we were, we went to as it seemed to be a pretty good up-and-coming technology for modern software development with different paradigms. We use Scala for our logistics, so it's very relatively kind of self-contained, but and in some other parts. Then we use a bit of Go, a bit of Rust, uh, a bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> a mix and match. <laughs> on, on the back end. So, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, there's, like, there's specific areas where certain things are kind of really good. For example, Go is really good for high out, output like, situations, for example, for marketing automation and, and things like that. So there's like separate, separate uh, specific things that where you want to use a specific technology. But mostly we'll, uh, we'll try to focus on a, kind of a Python Kotlin and then Scala for the specificity of, of logistics. Uh, on on front end side, we use Re- React and TypeScript, uh, and then on mobile, mostly native. And then we have a kind of bit of a flutter community coming up as well at the moment. So it's a bit it's a bit spread out, but we're trying to kind of find a ways to kind of keep it keep it somewhat manageable at scale. But you want to have to tr- you have to trust like quality engineering as well. So kind of you want to keep, want to keep that kind of people passionate about what they're building. They tend to build better results. And and where do you run all this? Mostly in Amazon, a little bit of in GCP. Uh, everything is on Kubernetes. Everything is pretty much Dockerized. Everything is kind of uh, like re- we went to Kubernetes pretty early. I think 2016, pretty much. And it's been pretty kind of uh, as a cloud native company, it's, it's re- relatively kind of fun to work with because you don't have have big kind of legacy migrations or anything like that. And uh, and can you give me some metrics on like the size of the code base? We run about. I think around 400 services at the moment, and we have and we have about two big monoliths still uh, on top yeah, of yeah. that. So there's there's over 60 teams. So there's there's a lot of code. There's yeah. a lot of code. 
if we talk a little about the rate of scaling, I actually looked this up from the Vault webpage, was that like between 2020 and 2021, Vault hired 2,300 people. So that's roughly 200 people per month on average. So, and obviously a significant part of that probably weren't tech people, but uh, even the tech must have been tens of people per month for a long time. Would that be correct, roughly? Yes, yes. Uh, I think we, we, we've grown like 100 150% year over year in, in a kind of engineering. So basically cu- quite a breakneck speed from, from those early humble, maybe 10, 12 folks to today's 420. So it's been it's been quite a quite a quite a ride for scaling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. And and actually, let's let's start talking about the scaling. So, how does the the rate of scaling that you've had affect the technologies that you choose to use at the Vault? That's an in- interesting question. I think kind of like most like modern, if you think of a language perspective, most modern languages like, like if you think Python, Kotlin, or Scala, which we're using for example, I think most of them are are, are very capable of, of of solving high scale problems and and at what what we need to do for example, being a very transactional business. So most of the users at Vault are are making a purchase, unlike gaming for example, where you have a lot of like a lot of high volumes but not that many are making the business. For us, it kind of matches the business size when you're scaling. So a lot of the kind of like technology scales, what doesn't scale is the way you build that technology. And I think that's that's where we've spent a lot of time over over the years. So when you start with, you kind of, it's relatively easy. There's not, not that many things that break, even though even though you get a large influx of, influx of users. Although uh, in 2016, we broke when we had a food carnival in, in Kaapelitehdas and we had 400 users come online at the same time. And, we crashed. <laughs> yeah. so we've gone a long way from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it's it's more about kind of it's it starts to be at least what we learned along the ways. There's like two things that come come into play pretty pretty much when you rapidly scale. There's service to service communication. So how, how what are the kind of weak points between services and how much do they spam each other with different sort of at different sort of scales? And the other one is uh, simply databases and database isolation or how 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 many shared databases you use. But that's already, I, th- I think, really interesting that what you're saying is that kind of the technology that you need to scale is not the issue. It's basically only the engineering, like the HR side of engineering. Well, I mean, I, 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 there, it, is, it is hard to create like, like circuit breaking and object pooling and all these things at the right way when you're scaling. But it's like it's not, not the language choices aren't the problem, really, unless yeah. you're doing something like super high I.O., Kind of specific specificity, like we built our logistics in C++ highly optimized because it needs to be. There's a kind of a problem space that that you cannot kind of horizontally scale easily. So so kind of a, that kind of requires you to go really deep in in the in the single technology. But otherwise, most most modern business problems don't necessarily require you to do like magic on top of the like modern ways of building software. And yeah. it's more about between the services and how do you how do you handle that that kind of that kind of level? Uh, from my experience, like the biggest challenges, and I'm biased here, of course, but uh, <laughs> my, 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 the biggest challenges are really kind of scaling the scaling the kind of culture and the people and how do you how do you kind of keep that like excellence going when you're scaling super fast, and and, and at the same time, how do you kind of make sure that you're doing kind of how like you have to trust your engineers. So how do you, how do you get the right engineers to do the right things at scale when you're scaling super fast when everybody is less than one year old? Let's talk a little about that because I, I think that is one of the most crucial things when you're trying to scale is that like how fast can you onboard people? So can you talk a little about the onboarding process and what do you do there? 
I, I think there's a couple of uh, schools for onboarding. Like, uh, like I've never been a, a very much on, a, a process person. Like it's always been about culture first. So the way we we typically onboard people is we kind of try to throw them at the deep end as fast as possible. <laughs> so we try to have like really interactive teams where teams are really yeah. working like highly highly collaborative models that they really try to work together solving problems. And when you join a team, you actually just like are given a problem and a friend to work with. And basically, yeah. the friend friend's job is to make, make, help you code code and solve the problem together. And we we used to aim for this. Like it used to be that we wanted to do to do a, a meaningful pull request in first day when you join the company. Nowadays, it's longer. <laughs> the, bigger the, the bigger the company gets, the longer it gets because it's yeah, yeah. it's just like more complex and it's, yeah, it's more course. and more harder yeah. to kind of like like really reason around all the all the solutions that we have and all the kind of observability requirements and everything you need to do at scale. But uh, but that's like the the kind of we still want to keep that. Like we yeah. have we even have a kind of like an OKR for next year, which is like first meaningful commit that we want to kind of keep it as low as possible for days when you join. It's not really about the level of documentation. I think we have a like nowadays most of the people who come to the company say that we have too many, too much documentation, yeah. and yeah. we started from having zero documentation. And documentation lives and dies as as companies evolve. And like, not a huge believer in just doing documentation. It's really about kind of having the right people around you. So basically, having a dedicated body who really helps you. I think that's been yeah. the biggest thing for us, even at, at scale. Somebody who you work with, and then you just solve the problems together. It's still engineering. You're still, so you're still kind of like you need good engineers, and you put them together, they will solve a problem. Uh, how long does it take for a new employee to become productive? So you already talked about the first comment, maybe even during the first day. But how about like you being actually productive? Like we aim for you to do like like, like meaningful work within the first month of your when you join. But yep. it depends a bit on where you join as well. If you join, for example, like a mobile application team, normally the code base is a bit smaller. It's a bit it's a single product. You're kind of like looking at it in a, a very different way. If you join like uh, like our, our one of our monolith backend kind of services, which is called Restaurant API, which we're active, actively decommissioning, but it, it handles so many cases that if you delve in there, it takes a lot longer for you yeah, to be. Yeah, sure. Which is also why we're decommissioning it. But it's like it's like we can tell that there's like like clearly probably like two or three times longer to be productive in, in, in that sort of environment. But I, I always think that like, like fully productive, a great engineer at Vault should be like like 90% productive in, in three months and 100% productive in six months. It, it does take a while, but I, that's like, like roughly yeah, what we did. Yeah, that sounds that. decent to me, at, at, at least like considering like once again, the size of the company already and the, the amount of people and the amount of different services that you're running, if you can get to get to running speed within three months I think that sounds really really good to me well, yeah. I mean that's what we that's what we aim for yeah. and, we, and we're trying to do a lot of like investments these days in developer productivity that's one of the big themes for next year is kind of like it's really velocity like how can mm. we give you the tools and the support that you can move faster as an engineer how can we standardize the technologies how, do, how can we create sort of like baseline observability and kind of alerting and other setups that you need when you set up a new service so that it's a just click run and you can do the feature work, the business impact that we want to do as fast as possible. As like at that scale, I think that becomes a really big, a different problem after mm. after a few hundred engineers. Yeah, so you're kind of building the templates, you're building the scaffolding, you're building all the things around that. If you want to build something fast, you can just pick up things that already exist and start building the the thing that is hopefully of business value. That leads me to to the question of like, how do you balance between building things fast to experiment versus building something robust once it's validated? We have this kind of mantra: that we really love small batch sizes. So it's all about kind of small releases, trying to find find a 
kind of the impact of what you're trying to do. Now, often if like we, and we've made this mistake many times that you kind of start with a really high flying concept and you start building like a, like a perfect solution yes. and then you release <laughs> yes. it. And then you, so we are really, really kind of tried to do small batch sizes, tried to do a lot of testing per release. So understanding the kind of impact of what we're trying to mm. do. When you say testing in that context, what do you mean? Because you're, I, I don't think you're not, you're talking about software testing. You're talking about testing with yeah, customers. Yeah, A-B a, 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 testing. Kind of, like, yeah, yeah, or, exactly. or I guess like we, our business is very kind of hyper-local. So we do a yeah. lot of like, well, A-B testing, but we often do like different cities. So some yeah. cities are like, like a complete ecosystem. So testing in a certain cities and features, and then trying to do like similar cities across the world and figuring out how those, how those, for example, map out. So it's it's a it's a very relatively complex business. So you need to do a lot of like lot of like data data diving to understand what what the real impact is. But we still do some features like more intuition driven. I think in consumer business you have to like if you want to change the paradigm, you have to do some things without like like everything validated. You have to have a bit of bit of boldness to do that. So there's a mixture of like data validity and kind of intuition driven driven solutions that we're trying to do. But yeah, small batch sizes still, like I, I believe you can do complex, hard things and still get value incrementally. We want every engineer to really think about the, what is the real goal we want to get to so we don't do like wrong solutions when we take shortcuts, but we at the same time want to get value out incrementally. But of course, like when you're building a feature out and you're testing it in a market, it doesn't have to be super robust yet. You can test it in one city. That city won't, won't kill you. Like it doesn't mm. have to be the most, most scalable solution at that yeah. point. And then when once you kind of prove or validate your point, then you can, of course, take, take the time to pay the debt and, exactly. and make it scalable. Yeah, so uh, this is actually a really important topic. Once again, like uh, the, the amount of technical debt and, and when is the right time to accrue debt and, and when is the right time to pay it back? So uh, any further thoughts on, on this? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a topic we've spent a lot of time, actually, ever since kind of COVID hit, because like we were pretty okay with our scalability and, and kind of the systems we were doing. We had this kind of certain amount of runway always. And when COVID hit, it, of course, affected our business a bit differently, being a kind of very consumer-centric, you know, people are at their homes. You can actually use a lot more of these services yes, that bring yeah. your stuff to your homes. Uh, so basically, we, we kind of ate away all of our runway, and we spent the next, like, two years basically trying to kind of claw back that that kind of exponential growth. Uh, do we have enough buffer re-architecturing things and doing a lot of like safety nets, a lot of from, from Redis to Kafka between, between service and services and a lot of this uh, kind of circuit breakers and kind of like this typical kind of modern scalable architecture pieces because we had ignored because we didn't need to do them. So that for the last few years, we've had like these really ambitious engineering initiatives where we kind of drive specific company-wide projects on, on engineering, so like re-architecting our kind of development environment and then our production environment and then re-architecting how we do our, our kind of like over, over time, we're trying to get to a re- kind of regional uh, clustering so we could actually run like Israel as a separate setup completely involved. And these sort of, kind of bigger things which require you to touch every every one of those two, 400 services you have. But you have to start being a lot more deliberate about technical initiatives, basically. A lot of the kind of like grass and roots done, refactoring is done in the teams. We give the teams a lot of freedom in this. Like they, they do this bonsai tree refactoring of constantly keeping their code bases good. But then a lot of the things can become beyond the team's code base. They become yeah. about like the kind of architecture and the solutions you have across the system. And then that becomes something you need to drive as kind of like a product initiative. It needs to be driven as a kind of properly prioritized, cross-organizational, high-priority item. And then it requires a lot of evangelizing and a lot of like hand-holding to make that happen because the business will always overrule you because that, as it should, but it's just, uh, that's, the, that's the push and pull that happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and how do individual engineers at the company deal with this? Because I, I, what I mean is that, at least in my experience, developers 
are really proud to make good, like build good products with really good code and with a lot of tests and, and with, with everything kind of taken into consideration from the start. And when you're trying to, like, like you said, you're in a very competitive field and when you're trying to move fast, you kind of have to skip a lot of that to stay ahead. And this is not something that comes naturally to a lot of developers. So how do you deal, deal with that? We run these really high ownership teams. So teams together decide their roadmap. Like with product in, inside the team as well, they decide what they really need to do. They decide, do they need to refactor this thing or not right now? And they, they do know the right things because they're really close to their customers. So they understand the kind of customer demands, like what, what are the real things? Every engineer should understand what they're building for, the whys. And we really try to spend a lot of time doing that so that every engineer really gets the context of like, okay, we're solving this thing for merchant onboarding because these merchants are suffering from it. And this is the value we're trying to generate from this. And I believe that smart engineers do those decisions, those kind of good balancing decisions in the teams, if you give them the power and, and kind of space to do so. So they know where they need to go and they know their own domain. So they can be like, okay, now I'm going to spend like two days refactoring this because it's, it's worth it for the next thing we're trying to solve. And doing this from like a weird top-down perspective where you give them a mandate and tell them that you need to do this, is you will always go wrong because you won't maximize for efficiency in the company. Like you, the efficiency comes from a lot of these experts knowing exactly what they need to do at this stage. Mm-hmm. So I believe kind of great engineers know when to do this right because we, we want our engineers to be proud of what they're doing. So we try, try to kind of be, have this craft pride and excellence approach as well. I love that and I, and I totally agree with that. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of software companies traditionally have done wrong or gotten wrong is that they, they just have so many people in between the engineers and the customers that there's like the message gets gets lost it's a it's an exercise of broken phone just... yeah i think like, empathy is important like it, it, you need to have empathy for your customers and that you need to meet your customer you can like, witness that of course there's a lot of like, the complexity we build as well with 23 25 countries the markets are very different so it's like you, you if you meet somebody in finland versus you meet somebody yeah, in tokyo yeah. or, or kind of like or i don't know in azerbaijan it's a very different different situation for all of this so kind of you can't just go, for, go with one example of course so yeah. there's a bit of added complexity there but it, it doesn't take away the fact that the, the empathy comes from actually meeting them we also try to have like uh, like engineering hubs co-located always where operations is. So basically when we have engineers, when they're at the office, of course, uh, actually, so they're working in the same spaces. So there's no delineation or kind of difference between, between are you kind of, where are you involved, are you working yeah. on? So that also kind of, I think, brings, up, brings kind of good communality across the business there. And you already mentioned that that the teams and and the the developers have a lot of autonomy, but let's let's talk a little about that. Like, what are, what are the kind of the boundaries for for that, and and how how much autonomy do you really have at the company? I think for autonomy of teams, it's it's kind of it's really about kind of how like what are the problems to solve for so understanding your customer. So bringing that input, I think every engineer is a very smart person. They can actually bring input rather than just the code. They can also bring input on the on the kind of what we need, to, what are the problems we need to solve, and how we need to solve them. Yeah, but then a lot of it, especially in a bigger picture, company has goals of like you have specific goals as a company, what you want to do in the big picture is about how do you get to those goals. And that should be completely decided by the teams in an ideal world. Of course, there's a lot of like opinions and there's a lot of input from, from countries and there's a lot of stakeholder management and kind of collecting of this to make this happen. But in the fundamentals of how we work is that the team makes the roadmap together. So roadmap is what you build and you make that together. Every engineer, every designer, every analyst, every product manager is kind of part of that, making that, that roadmap happen. So it's like, it's not, nothing is dictated, it's like a lot of context brought to that. And then you do a lot of 
Like we do spend a couple of weeks doing always roadmap together with the team, but then we also spend a, a week or so at least minimum kind of with other teams. So resolving inter-team dependencies and what sort of projects we need to do across the fold. But we're very team-centric still, we're very, very team-centric. We do roadmaps very kind of team-specific, at, even, even at this scale. Because that's like the unit that creates value is typically a team, like five to seven engineers, a data scientist, designer, product manager, they can change the world. They can do something, like even at our scale, they can do a, an amazing impact on customers and business. So I, I guess that just goes on to to say that that product development, when you're building new code, it's actually, and, and building the roadmap for what your team is about to build, you can actually have quite a lot of autonomy and, and not a lot of constraints. Because it's it's something where you have a lot of like checkpoints in between, not gates, I'm not talking about gates, but like a lot of people see the work and are able to comment it before it goes out and, and so on. And you kind of spot things that are going in the wrong direction. We try to keep it so that the, that the teams can move fast because the more you have like constraints or kind of like fear around these things, the less you ship. And yeah. the less you ship like actual production code, for example, the, the bigger your kind of releases become. So they, they're more risky they become. So, but I think at, at scale, like a lot of that needs to be solved by tooling. Like a kind of like the security aspect of this one and, and the kind of like the, the, the pr- protection of releasing it to production without failing is something that it, it needs to be, like it, it, it can't be done so that every engineer should think about it all the time. It needs yeah. to be automatic. But the thing we're really trying to solve for, uh, for next year is to have like really like top, best in class kind of automatic canary releases where we can really just kind of like roll back automatic. So you can do mistakes in production and just kind of ignore them. Same as with the developer tooling side of things that you don't have to have, think about everything. You can do even do mistakes, and the, the kind of the system handles most of that around you. That would be the ideal way, so that so that the process helps, but it should be automated. So you could get to a point where where you can ship something, realize that it's not working, and roll back in a in a matter of minutes. Yeah, yeah and, and and not even like you don't have to realize it's mis- like alert should kind of like automation yeah, yeah. should kind of be like okay, hey, by the way, there's something some some error rate is too high, and this one automatically rolling it back. And yeah. giving you kind of an information, okay, you need to fix this kind of a thing. That that would be the ideal situation over over time, of course. How do you do documentation and other forms of communication related to the technology? Like the best thing is to do is to have like like a decent pro- projects and descriptions and contribution guidelines and, and that sort of things straight in GitHub, so where yeah. the code lives. Yes. I don't think do code needs to be documented yes. unless you have like a hairy edge case that you're hacking into something. No. Other than that, we use we use Confluence quite a lot for writing like archit- like having like this kind of architecture and engineering knowledge base kind of stuff about how we build things, what sort of architectures we have, why why we did the solutions we do, kind of an approach. Uh, I guess nowadays based on feedback too much, but I think <laughs> depending on the projects. <laughs> and and uh, reading code and talking to your colleagues and your teams, it sounds to me like that's the way to learn. How about in terms of communication between these uh, autonomous teams? So in terms of like, how do you um, make sure that uh, the, the teams are generally going in the right direction together? And how do you communicate that they're kind of like not doing exactly the same thing at the same time? And okay, you actually, we already talked a little about that. It's also, that's also related to the, their responsibilities. So they shouldn't even be focusing on the same things. But anyway, like what, what are the ways in which the teams communicate together? Yeah, I think I kind of like just to point out on that fact is definitely teams are normally owning a specific piece. Like yeah. they can kind of reverse Conway's law that they build the system that they actually own, kind of kind yeah. of a way, and that kind of helps quite a lot there. Uh, I mean, like we we like we're very Slack centric as a company, very immediate communication kind of patterns. Every every team has a kind of open Slack channel, so where you can read up on their things, and you can also just kind of ping ping, ping people around. So that's like the easy way, to just kind of find people on that. 
like for this kind of road mapping and what we're building on, we do the syncing of the road maps. So when we look at this kind of like, we do like a half a yearly road maps and we look at them, we, we are, we're going to look at all the other pro projects and the kind of bigger priorities and we do the syncing on, okay, what are, what are the things we're building and are there overlaps? Because the bigger you get, there are a lot of projects. We built this subscription service Vault Plus last year and now it's like in, in use, for example, in Helsinki. That was like done in a three months across like eight teams. And it requires quite a lot of coordination at that level. So these are the projects that need to be like, discussed more. Other than that, I think, like, I believe it's, what we try to do is put engineers to talking to engineers. So if you're trying to solve a problem <laughs> together, you don't do this kind of like a vertical, like a universe V communication yes, chains yes. where where you talk through a person, through a person, through a person. But we're like, okay, we need to solve this problem. We need some, a drive team needs some help with logistics. Then they talk with the engineer in logistics. or so they talk to the team lead who gives them, okay, this guy is good talk together and putting the people together to solve those problems. Now, often the like there's many patterns to solve when you're actually trying to solve this across teams, but like putting those engineers together or like, like sending an engineer to work with that other team to solve those problems or these kind of different sort of uh, patterns work really well there. But really it's, it's about putting the people who know about it together. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. Like, I, I just love that you're bringing this out because it's it's such a common sense thing to do, but you we sometimes, we just, we lose that. We just like, we create this hierarchy where we, we want to make sure that that information flows only through that hierarchy. And we miss so many things as a result of that compared to let's just have these two people sit together and do something. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it comes down to trust, I think, in the end, kind of like, like you have to have trust in your people and your teams. And, and if you have trust, you will not know everything. It will, be, it will be a bit more chaotic. You will not have people who will know every single thing every person is doing all the time. So there's this balance you need to take about kind of how much transparency and how much visibility do you have in the, what what your people are doing and how much you they, they kind of they have like trust to actually solve those problems and that kind of balance I think it's where it comes from. If you want to control everything, you will not have this. You will have this command and control chains and you have a lot of this overhead in everything. But if you can trust that they solve the prob problems and you focus on the outcomes instead of the input metrics. I think it's a kind of that's like a healthy environment to be in. But it does require trust. Like the organization has to be based on trust rather than like. Uh, Trust and accountability rather than kind of like observ observability or kind of observation of things. You started at Vault in 2016. So if you could go back to 2016 knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? I think, like, I mean, like, in hindsight, it's always easy. I, I, I think, like, we are where we are today because of the solutions we did. So, we, for example, we decided to build our courier application React Native back in the day. We, we knew it probably wouldn't be the ideal solution, but it was the fast solution to go with. So, I think, I think, like, you can't really change these things uh, in yeah. retrospective. Like, there are things we would probably like have done differently along the way. Maybe moved more deliberately towards certain technologies, or, or kind of like, uh, like, not spend so much time building a, a, a kind of. A, subpar Scala service when we could have built a proper Scala service kind of thing because we didn't really know what we were doing with Scala when we started with it kind of thing. There's a lot of these sort of uh, things, but uh, I don't know. I, I, it feels dishonest to say that, you know, that, that, that you know, we did bad here because it, it got us where we are today. I don't think there's a specific thing I would, I would change as such. I mean, like there's, if you would like want to get the today's tech stack, of course, you would start de like destroying your monoliths earlier and you would like do team-based services earlier. Like that's like not microservices, forget the kind of horror of having too many services, but like, like splitting up team ownership specific, domain ownership specific services earlier is something that I think any company should do at, at, the, at the right time. Because when the services are small, they're really easy to do. But, but even then, it's, like, it's a bit hard because... You may, may be doing the wrong service at that point. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a, 
I believe we did the things we did to get to this point. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a very healthy, healthy way to look at it. That like we didn't know like how the business is going to develop. What are the things that are going to be crucial for the business in, in two years and so on? And and we did what we did with the knowledge that we had. And of course, like it's it's easier to say that like if we had known that the business is going to develop in this way, in this direction, we could have made d- different decisions. But, I mean, like, if we have known COVID would have hit, we would have spent more time building <laughs> exactly. reliability. We, we'd be like, we probably would have been like one month of reliability work, and we would have saved ourselves like nine months. Of pain or yeah. two years of pain. So yeah. Yeah, of course we would have done that differently. But at that point, that was the right choice because we won the markets we were in. Like it was like it was like a like a thing that got us here. Yeah, yeah. Kind of exactly, thing. exactly. What's the biggest tech fuck up in world's history? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are plenty. There are plenty. You make a lot of mistakes. Okay, <laughs> I, I will. I will tell you an embarrassing story. So, uh, <laughs> personally embarrassed about this. But uh, we have this principle that uh, normally you never fail twice on the same thing. And there's the biggest downtime we've had. Two of the biggest downtimes we've had are the same mistakes. So it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> the first time was we were very small, so it was like 2018, and it, it was kind of a lot. It was it was like non-peak time, so it wasn't that, that bad. But what happened was that we were, back in the day, we had more uh, liberal production access to, to engineers. And uh, an engineer was running tests uh, accidentally in production that dumped the whole whole merchant database. Holy shit. So, so, so like that... that, that. Like, like, whoops, they're gone. So, <laughs> and we we're like, what's happening? These are getting deleted. What's like, everybody's panicking and looking at it. And then somebody realized there's a test running, just deleting data. <laughs> and it was like uh, four oh, and no. a half hours of epic panic. But also a cool moment when you're looking at like, like how well people like, uh, resolve around that kind of, how we oriented around a couple of computers, how people just started solving that problem, restoring from backups and, and trying to make sure that we kind of handle the fact that we have couriers who don't know what they're doing and we have customers who are mad and merchants who are like, what the hell, where did the business go? And at the same time, trying to kind of like manage that whole thing and, and get it back up. <laughs> that was, uh, but that's, that was happened in 2018, but it also happened in 21. So that was, that was painful. <laughs> Three years in between. And the point was we, we <laughs> Reduced, you know, production access, not 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 for yeah. anyone anymore, especially for databases. Except if you're, you know, elevated access, for example, as a, as an on-call engineer. So it becomes like, and then you have a tiny little margin where it can happen, and boom, <laughs> happen again, <laughs> happen again. The same thing that the tests started delivering. Yes, same thing. Or, uh, well, yes, I could, yes, there was an investigation, a security investigation into this, but what we ended up with was that it was a it was the same thing. So running a test instead of running it against development, running it against production with that specific thing. <laughs> of having those elevated access, which yes, is very yes. narrow margin, yeah, yeah. and it still freaking happened. <laughs> uh, that was that was uh, that wasn't my proudest moment. That was like the worst worst uh, worst availability of vaults in the in that month in the history of vault. And that wow. was that was uh, that was the dark September. <laughs> I mean, we never find blame. We I don't personally know on either of these cases who actually run that test. We on purpose didn't even want to. Well, security did an investigation just to make sure that it was a person. But mm. other than that, like we didn't, didn't even want to. Yeah, know. It's, of it's, course, it's, it's not, not a, really relevant. Yeah. yeah. It's a, doesn't matter. It's like we, our systems yeah. are, are wrong. Yeah. This happened. This should not be able. You should not be able to do this. Yeah. So we need to yeah. fix the underlying reasons instead of like finding the blame. Don't care about the blame. Care about getting better. I guess the good thing is that it wasn't DNS because that's always where you go. That like it, it's it's not it's it's not DNS. Then you spend a lot of time researching it. Then it like yeah, it was DNS. <laughs> <laughs> that's the classic. <laughs> Thanks a lot for your time. It was really fun talking to you. Likewise. Likewise.